Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Evan Ratliff. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, occasional jackhammering outside the window, so let's get right to it. Max, who did you have on the show this week? This week on the show, I talked to Liz Hoffman. Liz is now an editor and reporter at Semaphore. She covers uh, business, Wall Street, high finance. She did it for almost 10 years at the Wall Street Journal before she joined Ben Smith at Semaphore. Uh, And we talked about her time at the Journal. We talked about what it's like to be working at a startup after being at this institution for so long. But we talked mostly about her new book. It's called Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink. And it's all about uh, how CEOs of huge companies, people running hedge funds, uh, the Fed, how people who control the U.S. economy responded to the pandemic. So it's based a lot in March and April of 2020, but it extends up through the end of 2022. Evan, as you know, I've got no head for finance. I don't really understand these these big uh, these big ideas. I can't really uh, I can't really deal with numbers of this scale. So there are I will tell you some moments in here where I'm literally just stunned by the scale of the money that Liz is constantly reporting on. Uh, but also there is a ton of backstory and getting in the heads of the people who are dealing with this like once-in-a-lifetime event and trying to figure out how to bring any rationality to it at all. Uh, I really enjoyed the book. I blew right through it, and it was really fun to talk to Liz about how she wrote it. I will also say, slightly uncomfortable to go back to March 2020 in the way that it did because it was felt very, very visceral. Uh, but, you know, Evan, I got through it. I even love the way you say, high finance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Our show is brought to you in partnership with Vox. Thanks to Vox. And now here's Max with Liz Hoffman. Hi, Liz. Hey, Max. Thanks for um, coming on the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. Uh, same. I am a uh, fan of yours because what you write about is a thing that I don't understand. <laughs> and uh, and so it's always a pleasure to read your stuff because I actually like, at least I feel like I understand it at the end, even if though like I might not totally. It, had, it has the effect of making me feel like I get it, which I appreciate. That's so great. That's the idea. Uh, is the idea to actually get it or just feel like you get it? <laughs> The idea is to make complicated stuff moderately less complicated. So if I've done that, I've succeeded. Well, yeah, I feel like Liz, one of the things you're able to do with this stuff is like I can credibly pretend that I understand it. Like I've given you like cocktail party talking points. Yeah, yeah. You've given me like seven and a half minutes of not sounding like a moron. Like I can't I can't get to 10, but I can get to seven and a half. My job here is done. Um, Where did you get interested in this world of high finance where where did this interest come from when did you start writing about it why is this your life i think there's like two kinds of journalists right there's there's one who like is really passionate about a topic about a thing um you often find them becoming foreign correspondents or like working for sort of slightly issues based publications i am not that kind of reporter i am someone who can kind of nerd out about anything like I find like the intellectual challenge of being like, wow, this is weird. I don't know anything about it. Let me find out what the deal is. I enjoy that. So the answer is I had no intention. To the extent I ever really wanted to be a specific kind of reporter, I started out in college as a sports reporter and had some ambitions there. And then I realized that even if you rise to the pinnacle of that field, your reward is to live in Bristol, Connecticut (laughs) and work for ESPN, which didn't really appeal to me. But, you know, my first job was out of college working for a newspaper on the south shore of Boston. Um, you know, real cops and courts, zoning meetings, that kind of stuff. Uh, I went to graduate school in Chicago for a year thinking that the economy would be better in 2009. I'd be able to get an actual newsroom job. Um, great bet. Which is not great the case. Bet. Yeah, great bet. <laughs> so, yeah, really uh, an economics mind even then. But, no, I actually I moved to New York in 2011 to work for a legal trade pub. Um, And knowing what I know now, like trade pubs are such great ways to get started because like you are thrown totally into the deep end um, of this really complicated stuff. And I covered M&A for M&A lawyers. (laughs) So Um, you you were covering legal mergers and acquisitions for lawyers who do M&A. Yeah. It was terrifying. <laughs> it was insane. And actually, it was even that was a lucky break because I think I was c- hired to cover something even more soul-sucking, like securities litigation or insurance litigation or something. And then my first day, they were like, uh, we want to cover corporate law. Do you want to do it? I was like, sure. Yeah. Um, love corporate law. Love corporate law. What's not to love? <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I a series of very lucky breaks later ended up at the Wall Street Journal on the M&A team there. Uh, did that for a couple of years and then covered investment banking, finance, capital markets, all kinds of stuff. And the answer is I just kind of liked it. It sort of made sense to me. And um, there was always something going on. And uh, I don't know, it was like less less toxic than being a political reporter, which just seems awful to me. So I don't know. I just like the economy. It matters a lot. And um, and covering, <laughs> covering it seems important. The stakes are always there. Why, why does it feel less uh, toxic to you than political reporting? Oh, I don't. I, politics just seems terrible. I mean, it just seems so processy and and catty and 
everyone's lying to you. I don't know. Like, I've met fewer real assholes than you would think. Like, sure, sometimes people lie and, and you know, there's stories that people don't want out there. But um, I actually have found that most people are, like, pretty smart and, like, thoughtful and think what they do is interesting and want to talk to you about it. Whereas, like, Washington, D.C. just seems uh, – it doesn't seem like something I would be good at or enjoy. I'm happy you brought that up about uh, people being thoughtful and smart and not assholes. Because one of the big questions I had after reading your book was whether or not you like these guys, and they're mostly guys. Uh, but before we get there, because that's a big picture question, I have some smaller picture questions. One of them is when you were working at the like Law Journal and then your early days at the Wall Street Journal, covering this world of Wall Street, what were you, what were you making? What was I being paid? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I moved to New York making $45,000 a year and thought I was just like living large <laughs> yeah, because I believe it. my job in Chicago before that was paying $27,000 a year in 2009 to 10. Um, you know, the journal is a union shop, so I believe the scale is like fairly set in public, but like high fives, eventually like low sixes is sort of like the, the scale that you can expect to make as a journalist in New York. I appreciate you saying those numbers. People don't always um, feel comfortable saying them on the show. I'm not weird about money, and I actually think it's helpful to just be honest about it. I think so, too. But my question is, what was it like or what is it like now covering people who make unbelievable sums of money, who are dealing with unbelievable sums of money when you are making whatever the pay band for the Wall Street Journal Union says you make? Um, I mean, it's a weird job, right? Because you're right, like, I am the poorest person in any room that I'm in um, when you're out on the beat, but you have a power that they ultimately have to, and I think mostly do respect, which is that if you've done your work, you've got the reporting, you have the facts, you're thoughtful about it, you're not spiteful, um, you get to write a story and it goes on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And like, that I think is a real balancing mechanism to what you rightly point out is a weird, imbalanced relationship. Yeah, I mean, I guess like part of it also is just trying to understand for yourself the the scale. You know, people are making billion, literal billion dollar bets all the time. And I had trouble wrapping my head around numbers that high and this sort of like logic but emotion that are based in bets those big. And it just made me think about like what living in that world all the time where people are thinking in terms of billions, not even tens of millions, whether that interacts at all with like whatever your monthly budget process is, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, if if any of us were in it for the last nickel, we would be in a different business entirely. So, um, you know, I remember I had read a story somewhat early on at the journal. I think Goldman Sachs had lost like $100 million betting the wrong way on natural on gas prices. I don't remember exactly what the situation was. Um, and I got a bunch of notes from sources that were like, that's, that's amateur hour. Like that's not, that's not even, that's not even worth like thinking about. And the joke on Wall Street is like, you lose a billion dollars and you get fired, but you get hired immediately somewhere else because you were the kind of person that they gave a billion dollars to bet with too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, just the scale is just, is totally different. Do you like these guys that are in the book? I think I came 
almost to a person to respect them. And look, this is a real like worldview that I brought into the book. And if you've read it, you'll understand that, which is like, I don't wake up in the morning thinking capitalism is evil and that all these guys are terrible. That is not my starting point. You know, there's certainly a lot of problems with the system and bad actors. But I will say, you know, that almost everyone I talk to at almost every point for, you know, more than 18 months was trying to do the right thing. And most of the time they did it. You know, there's also a little bit of a, a self-selection part of this, which is most reporters cover beat and the big story happens on the beat and they just like crush it for six months and they're like, oh, I should write a book about this, mm-hmm. right? We've all read those books. Um, this was not quite that, right? This was like early on in something that felt like it was going to be big, but like there is no reporter at the Wall Street Journal or, or elsewhere whose beat is every company on the planet, right? <laughs> right? So so I had to think carefully and, and um, lean on relationships that I built over years, just like, oh, who's my cast of character? What is my cinematic universe here? Um, and, you know, there there is no meatpacking company in there. There is no cruise company in there. And those are like totally fair criticisms. Um, but I think ultimately you have to tell the story that you're best equipped to tell. And so these are people who I actually really did come to respect and I think we're mostly trying to do the right thing. And at the end of the day, really just got like massively bailed out by the federal government. Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, that's basically yeah. that's basically the end <laughs> in almost every case. But can we go back to um, your feelings about capitalism for a second? Do you think you could do your job if you didn't feel that way? Like if you had real foundational questions about the essential like uh, goodness or lack thereof of the system, could you do your job? Um, I I don't think you would do it that successfully at the Wall Street Journal, which isn't to say it's not a political thing at all, right? It's just like, do we think this thing in itself is interesting and valuable and worth understanding and unpacking for people? Um, Or do we just want to sit there and throw stones and call them out when they screw up, which is totally worth doing? Um, But yeah, I, I don't know. I think that these systems are hugely important and are wielded by people who are not that accessible. Um, and if you can sort of open the aperture a little bit and unpack that and explain to people what's going on and leave them to sort of, you know, come away with their own conclusions about the morality of the whole thing. That's, I think, where I'm most comfortable. How do you get people like this who so rarely do open up to open up to you? Charm, wit, I don't know. I mean, it was not as hard to sell as you would think, which was so clearly an important moment that needed to be captured. And look, you just try to be an honest broker. You say, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's why I think it's important. You know, it helps to have, you know, a track record behind you, which I, you know, did having spent, you know, nine years at the Wall Street Journal. And um, I'm amazed anyone ever talks to a journalist, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel the same way. The folks that are in your book, I, I'm particularly surprised that they would talk to a journalist. Although, as you said earlier, like many of them ended up navigating this pretty successfully or or at least getting through it? Well, I think, look, most CEOs, uh, and they're almost all men, are living this kind of great men of history in their heads, right? The profiles encourage, just kind of waiting for the camera to start rolling. So there's certainly like an element of legacy building or legacy grabbing and vanity in all of this. Um, but they also got to the jobs that they got to by believing that what they do is important, right? 
and you and I can disagree, but like they care about these people. They care about these companies. They care about the economy. They think they are positioned to uh, help. <laughs> and, uh, and most people, I think, want to see that appreciated on some level or at least told accurately. What was the reporting process like? Well, um, I mean, like I said before, right, most reporters, they sit down to write a book and like 90% of what's going to be in the book has already happened, right? It's some big corporate scandal that they cover, like some, right, some big investigation. And then it's really, a, uh, you re-report, but it's, you kind of know the arc. This was not that, um, you know, this was trying to get smart about industries that I'd never covered. I spent almost my entire career covering Wall Street, banks, finance. Um, and honestly, I thought when I started that this would be more of a financial crisis. You remember the early days of the pandemic, it was really the markets were freaking out. Yeah. Um, and it seemed very much like it was entirely, you know, it seemed entirely possible that we would get another 2008. We didn't. It ultimately ended up being a crisis in the real economy, um, you know, where, you know, I, <laughs> You know, you have to tell that story in sort of the broadest, most kind of kaleidoscopic way that you can, which is the economy's big place. And the story was constantly changing on me, and I feel like I was always kind of waiting for an end that never came because here we are three years in, you know? Um, if I were doing it again, I might have just dropped the curtain at the end of 2020, you know, and just sort of made it a very tight year uh, when the vaccines were on the horizon and just said, like, here's the end. But I think like everyone, I was constantly waiting for this, this like end scene clapper to and just it to all be over. And it never was. Well, that was, a, that was another question I had. I mean, there were aspects of reading the book that I found quite uncomfortable because I really hadn't sat in March and April, 2020 in that way in a long time, you know, like, uh, I'd sort of like um, uh, blocked a lot of it, I think, from my memory. And I wondered reading it, what it was like for you to go and sit so firmly in that time. You know, the pandemic became just this like incredibly fraught, divisive, like the worst Groundhog's Day movie you've ever seen, right? It never ended and it just got more and more vicious and complicated as it went on. But if you remember those early days, there was something weird and earnest and scary, but also a little exciting. There was, there was some kind of weird emotional stew in the early days of the pandemic that got lost um, and that I really wanted to sit with for a while. I really wanted to like remind people, like we banged pots out of windows. Like for a, for a minute there, it was like, we were fist bumping and it was funny, right? There was like a kind of a really strange emotional stew that I think is worth sitting in a little bit. And the pot banging really is like the ultimate example of that. There was like a real emotional pitch to the whole thing of those early weeks. And now you look back and it's like, it feels saccharine and stupid and also was obviously not backed up by any like real support for the people that we were like claiming to be supporting. Um, so, but it was it was strange, and it was like a real moment. And I think if you read the book, you'll actually, I think the pacing of the book sort of mirrors that, which is to say, like, the first, you know, God, probably the first half of the book takes place in about six weeks, maybe eight weeks, and is just incredibly, you know, just like narrative reporting, just like falling out of my ears. And then it's sort of, I don't know, it became this kind of like long slog of, of, 
I don't know. Everyone was kind of in a bad mood. <laughs> and I like there was a whole year there that I think we all just like forgot. Like 2021 to mid 2022 just like never happened. And so the end of, you know, the last sort of third of the book is a little more of a kind of choose your own adventure, like return to work, like uh, foreshadowing, you know, the economic situation that we're in now, like just a lot of like weird kind of thematic vibes because it just didn't have that kind of crisp narrative arc that was so evident in the early days and like just so naturally tense. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. I want to go back to the CEOs for a second, the sort of characters that carry you through the book. And part of the thing that I was interested in was just like, you know, like I was asking about before, just like, how much do you like these guys? But another thing was like what you learned about that job that maybe you hadn't known from the years of sort of beat reporting, like going in this deep on what it was like to be in that job through this time. Did you learn something new about like the essential nature of being a CEO? Like, was there something that felt new in that way to you? I think there's a little bit of like an intellectual exercise that you can do here, which is if the pandemic was half as bad and the government response was like half as robust, I think you would have seen like a broad, like a bigger 
disparate array of outcomes, right? You know, I remember I was talking to my publisher early on, and I think the the working subtitle of the book was something like Fortune and Failure in the Pandemic Economy. And I think it was like late, like late 21, maybe we're talking. I was like, you know, Paul, like not a lot of failure as it turns out, right? You know, I think I had really been bracing for um, just like a real generational washout. And the answer is that actually the government backstopped basically everybody. So I think we sort of missed a little bit of a moment to like get a real sense of what I told you I was a sports reporter once, the value of a replacement for a lot of, for this job is, um, because for a lot of the 2010s, it just wasn't that high. It wasn't that hard to be a CEO from 2010 to 2020. Like stocks went up, debt was cheap. You were maybe like tasked with like one important decision, but just the backdrop was so incredibly benign. It was just real like, don't, don't fuck it up energy. Don't fuck it up. And there was some growing sense, I think, that like kind of any dum-dum with a handshake could do it, um, which I don't think was ever really true, but I think was, is now just like very much untrue. Like, I think their job got a lot harder, which is like, you know, think about, there was this huge vacuum of public sector leadership from the White House, CDC, right? Like just did not instill any confidence in the public. And... CEOs kind of like rushed into that vacuum. And the tests early on were pretty morally unambiguous, right? Like, how do you be present during a pandemic? Just like, don't act like an asshole, right? You know, when George Floyd is murdered, that's morally unambiguous. It's very bad. And you can say that publicly without, you know, inviting a lot of criticism. And even things like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you you see CEOs sort of make public statements and kind of get out of symbolic businesses in Russia. But I think the bottom of that slippery slope, which is kind of where we are now, which is some of these issues are very tricky and it's very hard to take a position that doesn't alienate a huge constituency if you're a public company CEO. And like 10 years ago, I'm not sure you were like expected to have a point of view on this stuff. Just look at what happened with Disney, right? The CEO said, you know what? I don't think it's my job to have an opinion on this law in Florida. Um, and then he got absolutely pilloried. And he said, oh, wait, okay, we do have an opinion. But then he changed what the opinion was like once or twice. And he lost his job over it ultimately. Um, so I think the kind of the, – the part of a CEO's job that is not sort of head down day-to-day running their business has just like massively grown. And I think they really regret it. I think they really regret sticking their head above the parapet and would rather just like get back to doing their job. And do you think that they can't? No. This is a this is a forever change. I think the only way it changes back is if there is like a broader ratcheting down of the temperature in the country and I don't see any evidence that that's going to happen. But the idea that these culture wars that you know, came for politics and media and education and have ruined every Thanksgiving dinner you've been at for the last four years, that they were going to somehow leave commerce alone was, I think, pretty naive. And it's your sense from talking to people in that position that if they could get out of that spot, they would? 100%. Do you think it's going to reward people in the future who want to be weighing in in that way? Like, do you think that the way you're going to get in that seat is because you know, you're, you're a charismatic speaker on the issues? It depends on what kind of company you are, right? Like if you, there are certain companies who sort of court this kind of uh, particularly socially minded consumer and 
I think those those jobs are get easier out of all of this because like you're expected to have an opinion. People sort of know what it should be, and then it becomes how do you articulate it? How do you be a good a good advocate for it? And I also think there's another kind of company where, you know, Goldman Sachs, right? Not to paint with too broad a brush, but like their employees and their clients and their customers are like a fairly homogenous set, I think. But if you look at, for example, Disney, right? They've got this big Hollywood talent operation. They are selling cruise tickets to middle America. They are selling streaming subscriptions to suburban moms. I mean, that's like a really diverse coalition of people to not piss off by saying the wrong thing. And I don't think there's a way out of it. And I think that the sort of DNA of that change is like firmly in March of 2020. How many of these people do you think are playing a long game? I mean, that was part of what was so interesting to me about reading the book, which it felt like some people were looking for really lucrative short-term bets. Some people were looking for incredibly helpful short-term relief. And then some people seem to me to have an eye toward two or five or 10 years down the line. And maybe that's just about the jobs that they have and what those jobs ask of them. But, you know, in your time in this world on Wall Street, I guess like one thing that I was curious about was just like, do you you have a sense that people are thinking long term or is everyone kind of on a sort of hamster wheel of what to get done in the next couple of days or weeks or whatever? I think it's always been a hamster wheel. I mean, we can argue about whether three months at a time is the right way to judge a public company, but that quarterly treadmill of earnings. And, you know, just like everyone else, their jobs just got so, their world's got so small so fast, right? And they had to make a million small decisions, um, you know, constantly. And actually, I think one takeaway, um, you know, there was one example in the book where this was uh, in early March of 2020, and the CEO of Hilton says to his CFO, I want every dollar I can get. He calls up his general counsel. He says, you know, they maintain these lines of credit with banks, kind of designed never to be used, but they're there. Banks don't love it when you use them, and they really don't love it when everyone uses them all at once. Yeah, they're sort of like pork put into other deals, but they're not really supposed to get called. They're a terrible product because banks give them away for free to get other business, and then everyone needs them all at once when the economy tanks. It's like a real mess. But he calls the general counsel and says, do I need board approval for that? Like, I've never done that before. And this is a guy who was a CEO uh, of a heavily leveraged private equity company in 2008 and the CEO of a a travel company in when the dot-com bubble burst. So he's been through this a couple times. And his lawyer said, I don't don't think so. So he said, do it. And they became the first company to pull their credit lines with banks. And it was, at the time, it was big news. I mean, Bloomberg News wrote a whole story about it. And they were, I think, criticized as kind of sowing a panic. And then, you know, someone sends it to the CEO and he replies, uh, you know, just just wait. Like in a week, this won't even be worth writing about. Exactly. I, that, that was one of those lines that put me back in how quickly it was changing. And that's the thing that's in the book, which I found so compelling, was like what was so clear was that no one had any fucking idea what was going on. And whether you were running a gigantic publicly traded company or were just like home with your two kids or both, no one had any idea what was going to happen. So I opened the book in Davos of 2020, which will just go down to me 
as the most absurd gathering of human beings in history. <laughs> like, these are people who should have the best lines of sight in the world. They run multinational companies. They are regulators. <laughs> they are setting policy. They are, right, these are real halls of power people. And the scene that I opened the book with is this private dinner with a bunch of CEOs and Steven Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. And they're all yakking about ESG. This is the year that Greta Thunberg was there. And it was climate. And it was you know this sort of like corporate tin-eared talk that just kind of makes your eyes fall out of your head. And, um, and Mnuchin gets up and to, to his credits, like, you guys, like, you're, you're focused on the wrong thing. Um, there's a city of 11 million people in China that's on lockdown. And, uh, and just like was not anywhere on the radar of any of the CEOs in that room, who include some of the biggest companies in America. Um, and by the way, like it wasn't on my, I was at Davos. I was <laughs> one of those people who was like eating cubes of cheese off of communal trays and like packed, you know, four deep at like the piano bar at the end of the night. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, that would just feel like a different planet. So, um, you know, this is not Monday morning quarterbacking, but also I don't run a, a company with, you know, operations all around the world. So they were like just as blindsided as the rest of us and bumped along in the dark just as much as we did. And ultimately, I actually found that a little comforting. I don't think most people would be comfortable knowing that there's this like elite class of people that like knows more than they do about stuff like this. Can we talk about your current boss for a second? Sure. He's been on the show before. Your, your current boss is Ben Smith. You're now working with Ben at Semaphore. And I am interested in what it is like to be part of like a new thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I left like the most sort of institutional place on the planet um, and joined a startup. It was 10 people when I started. We're about 50 now. I guess my, my take would be the stuff that you were worried about. And for me, that was like can I still do this job without the business card, right? You never really know how much of your success is the institution behind you. Um, have just turned out mostly not to be a problem. And then the stuff that like you never think about is the stuff that you end up <laughs> kind of putting up fires left and right. But no, I think, um, I mean, look, you know, Ben, he's incredibly smart and energetic and thoughtful about the news. And, um, you know, something we sort of touched on earlier in the conversation, but there is this, declining trust in institutions of all kinds, but an increasing affinity for like individuals. I think people are more cognizant and more, uh, and choosier about the, the people that they trust. Um, and so we've tried in some ways to, to capitalize on that, which is, um, to sort of put journalists closer to the readers and subjects and sources and just be nimbler and more, talk to people the way you would actually talk to people, <laughs> explain things the way you would explain them to like your smart friend at a party, um, you know, I think has been really fun and, and gratifying and freeing. And, um, you know, I guess my takeaway six months in is like, you don't need a lot of people, you need good people, but you don't need a lot of people to get something interesting off the ground. You're saying that uh, there were some unanticipated fires working at a smaller startup. Do any of them rhyme with Sam Bankman-Fried? Uh, I will say that um, I didn't expect to have to say as many times in the first two months that we launched, disclosure, 
Sam Bankman-Fried is an investor in Semaphore. But I will also say that the reason that I had to write that so many times is that we broke a ton of news about the crypto crash. Um, and that, like, I think of, you know, in the same way that when I worked at the journal, I didn't think for 10 seconds about who owned our stock, which, by the way, there was a large, occasionally problematic shareholder uh, at News Corp as well. So I, I don't spend a minute thinking about it. What I do spend my time on is the journalism. And um, I'm really proud of what we've done so far. Are you an investor in Semaphore? I think it is public that employees do have equity. And does that, like, how does that interact not with your journalism, but with your daily life? Like, being part of the actual business of it, you spent your career covering businesses and people making these decisions. And I, I'm, I am curious about what it's like to now be a part owner of one that's making a thousand decisions every day. Uh, great question. I will say, so like, you know, as a business reporter for years, you would talk to startup founders and they would say the same stuff and your eyes would just like fall out of your head. Like white sheet of paper, everyone's an owner, like sweat equity. It's totally different. But like, no, there's some truth to that, which I think I had been sort of overly skeptical of. Um, I think I'd underestimated how valuable it was to have everyone sort of directionally bought in and rowing in the same direction. And, um, yeah, look, I, the short answer is we have an incredibly talented business side and like uh, they are very good at their jobs. And I'm just the mushroom farmer, just like asking people for their money secrets and then writing them up. So um, but uh, I'm not that entrepreneurial, actually. Like I never would have I thought I would spend my career at the journal. I would never have done like a Substack. I'm just I'm not that entrepreneurial or that vain, frankly. But um, I think this really Semaphore really offered the best of both worlds, which is like this incredibly talented small group of people with a lot of sort of room to be nimble and flexible and thoughtful, but with like real institutional backing. Because if you're going to, if you do what I do, you're going to end up at some point having fights with powerful people about stuff. And um, I think having, you know, a brand to back you up and occasionally hide behind is, is helpful. I asked Ben before we talked what I should ask you about. And he suggested oh, a couple of things, but one of them was the most Ben Smith question in the world, which was why you're so obsessed with scoops. Because I really don't know anyone who's more obsessed than Ben with scoops. But can you articulate your relationship to scoops? Yeah. It's first, I think Ben is more obsessed than me. So <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anyone like it. But look, I think... Look, if you're going to be in the news business, you have to break news. That's sort of the cost of admission. And I think particularly so in the kinds of stories that we're, the kind of journalism we're trying to produce, which is if you read our stuff at Semaphore, you'll see like, here's the news or the scoop, hopefully it's scoop. Here's genuinely what I think about it, right? I think newsrooms have kind of, the ones that have really gotten themselves into trouble, have kind of self-immolated, have done so by pretending their journalists aren't real people. Right. And then they would have these like insane fights on Twitter and just got very messy. I think we're trying to like address that head on, which is I've been covering finance for a long time. Here's genuinely what I think about this thing. It's not a hot take. It's a reported opinion. And then elevating here's here's someone who might disagree with me. Here's where I might be wrong and not having it be like a throwaway line. We call it the to be sure graph, the Wall Street Journal, which is put it somewhere high enough up. That's like to be sure this could be bullshit. I don't know. (laughs) Right. I could be totally Um, wrong. Could be totally wrong, um, but to actually like give that its own its own voice, and I, I I say this because I think, you know, without that metabolism of going out and breaking news, 
with that format that you could have a tendency to just kind of become like a French salon, just like, you know, spewing opinions and, you know, without any understanding of why people should care what you think. And the answer is because you went out and you found this piece of news. That said, I do think that sometimes scoops for scoops sake are silly. And you'll see them sometimes where it's like, I think the reporter's are writing this for their competitors. Mm-hmm. Like, here is a scoop. And then you read it and you're like, wait, what? And I think most readers on most days don't care whether something's a scoop. They care whether they didn't know it. They care whether it's interesting. And they care whether it's presented to them in a way that makes sense. So I would say, like, huge, truly huge scoops. You don't need to call them a scoop. Everyone knows they're a scoop. Um, and kind of dressing up an incremental thing that maybe is or isn't public, I don't think there's a lot of value in that. But like, I try to break news on the big stories that are driving the agenda. So we broke Microsoft's investment in ChatGPT two months ago. That's a big story, right? Now we're in this huge AI super cycle. And it really kind of started with that investment. So um, I don't know. Ben, I love scoops. They're fun. They're the price of admission to this business. Part of, I think, what I was asking was, you know, if they're the price of admission is the value of that ticket going down. I mean, is the value of a scoop going down? And what I hear in your answer is not on the big ones and on the small ones, sure, unless you can offer real context and you're just starting out and it's really helpful as you're building a place. That is the other thing, which is, you know, you're building a brand and the way to build credibility is to break news and particularly news that others have to match and cite. And And cite, yeah. I mean, to literally getting the name out, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I do think there is some sense of like scoops for scoops sake that like, as I've matured, Max, no, but I mean, like (laughs) the longer you're in this business, you're like, yeah, I don't know. Like, is that, I don't know. Was that one worth it? I'm not sure. Um, And there are... uh, a lot of stories out there, and I think that, you know, chasing the same one as everyone else is not always the way to succeed. And how does that interact with a project like the book? The origin story of the book was this, like, 10,000-word story that I'd done for the Wall Street Journal that published the first weekend of April of 2020, and it was, like, a day-by-day with a lot of help from a lot of colleagues at the journal, but uh, the month of March, like, the month that that the economy shut down um, in these little vignettes from sort of all over the place. And, um, and I was like, that was like nine or 10,000 words. And a book is like 80 to 90,000 words. I was like, Oh, okay. No problem. Just like 10 of those. <laughs> bang that out. <laughs> just bang that out. It's great. I did this in three days. This will be fine. Um, so obviously just like my expectations were way off there. Um, you know, I think there were parts of the book writing process that I really liked. Um, on the whole, I think, I'm kind of a, I'm a reporter who kind of like lives off the land, which is a nice way of saying I kind of fly by the seat of my pants sometimes. You just talk to a lot of people and someone says something interesting, they're like, oh, that's a story, that's what I'll do. And that's not a book at all, right? A book is really just about architecting and discipline and put, putting your butt in a chair and writing a thousand words a day, understanding that most of them are going to suck. Um so I don't know. It was like a it was a it was an itch to scratch and I think there are parts of it that I really enjoyed but like it bears almost no resemblance to my actual style as a daily journalist. I got to say that did not that did not sound like a rousing endorsement for book number 2. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think um well th- there is a piece of it which is like I don't have kids but I suspect it's similar which is like 
you go through this thing and you're like, oh my God, that almost killed me. Why would anyone do that again? And you're like, but I would be better at it the second time around. Right, right, right. So I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, the reporting of the book, I really, really, really enjoyed. Uh, there were pieces of the writing that I really liked, some that I found incredibly challenging. Yeah, it doesn't sound like an arousing endorsement for book number two, I got to tell you. <laughs> I'll see if I stumble on a story good enough for one. Liz, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Max. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Seth Kelly edited this episode. Thanks to him. Thanks to Megan Valley, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Liz Hoffman. Her book is called Crash Landing. Go read it. Go read her on Semaphore. And we'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.